The Woolly Company, though, runs out of food that day. That morning, the first snowstorm hits. They've been traveling on reduced rations all this time. They don't have clothing. They don't have bedding to help them through this storm. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be discussing Chapter 15 of Saints, Volume 2, In Storms and in Calms. We're excited today to have with us Andrew Olson, who is an editor in the Publishing Services Department at the church. Andrew is also an author of two books about the handcart rescue. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. First of all, tell us uh, about the books that that you've written and who your co-authors are. Well, the first book I wrote was The Price We Paid, and that was back in 2006, and wrote that one on my own, although with a lot of help. The second book was in 2013 called Follow Me to Zion with co-author Jolene Alfin, and Julie Rogers, a very well-known artist, did some fantastic art for that. Follow Me to Zion is a book that just tells the stories of several of the Woolly Handcart companies and their rescue. So, Andrew, tell us a little bit about what led you to write these books. My very beginning came from when I was called, as I was serving in a stake young men's presidency, and our young men's president had this vision that we should do a stake handcart trek to Martin's Cove. And we went there for the training, and I came away more confused than when I arrived. And I also came away spiritually impressed that I really wanted to know more about these companies. Our stake young men's president asked me to begin to put some things together for our stake to help prepare them spiritually for this. And as I got putting the stories together, I found there was not really a a modern resource that made it all clear. There was Handcart's design, which is very good, but it was written 50 years ago. And it only gave 50 pages to William Martin. And so I started researching the people. I started researching the timeline, started putting together the people with the timeline so it would make sense, at least to me, and then hopefully to others, how the story unfolded. We are grateful to have you with us because this is a story that I think a lot of members of the church, especially if they have been members for their whole life or for a long time, they probably think, oh, I know the handcart story. I know how that worked. And then as we dig into it and as we learn in Saints Volume 2, there's a whole lot to this story that I think many people will be surprised about, details they didn't understand, And uh, it really makes this more remarkable than it even has been in the past in some of the shorter versions we might have heard of. Can you tell us just a little bit about where did this idea for handcarts come from? We hear Brigham Young talking about it in the book, but was he the first person ever to come up with the idea for immigrants to travel with a, a cart pushed by hand? I'm not sure he was the first person ever, but there were people in the gold rush time, so this is in the late 1840s, who traveled across the country with wheelbarrows and traptions. (laughs) And the feeling was, I think as early as 1852 for Brigham Young, that the saints could do very well if they could pull their their belongings on handcarts. Traveling by handcart was about a tenth the cost of traveling by wagon. And he saw many other advantages to it, but he didn't actually implement the plan until 1856. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but... So you just mentioned one of the key reasons why this was a good idea, cost. We had a lot of really impoverished people trying to make their way here. Can you maybe go into a little more detail on cost? What was involved in a handcart group versus a wagon train? and cost and speed and what those things looked like on the trail. 
Sure. There were a lot of factors besides cost. And if it were, if cost were the only factor, I, I think that might be a problem. But uh, Brigham Young also believed that the handcart companies could travel much faster than wagon companies. Most of the people with wagon companies were walking anyway. And so he felt like, for one thing, the journey would be much easier to prepare for. You wouldn't have to gather up all these cattle, all these wagons. You wouldn't have to find trained oxen, which was somewhat difficult sometimes. You wouldn't have to gather up all the cattle every morning before you started, which sometimes could take a couple of hours. They were unruly and they would stray and and you wouldn't have the, the worry about guarding the cattle at night. I mean, it would just be much more streamlined, much simpler. Um, those were some of the advantages. There were others as well that he saw, besides the cost of being uh, about a tenth of what a wagon company would cost. What does it look like on the trail? If we were to see a wagon train moving across, how far are they spaced apart? How many of them are there? And then versus this smaller streamlined handcart group, what, what does that look like on the trail? The wagon companies typically were more strung out on the trail, but sometimes the handcart companies themselves were also fairly strung out, depending on, you know, some people were not able to pull their handcarts at the same pace as others. And there are a lot of great stories of people helping them, but still, you can only go as fast as you can walk. And so there were some times where people got into camp very late for that reason. So we read in a previous chapter about Brigham Young's idea to have people travel by handcarts. Tell us about when this idea was made as an announcement or actual plans, and then how was that implemented? So it was made as an actual plan, I think, in one of the general epistles in late 1855. There were thousands of saints in Europe, particularly Britain, who had wanted to emigrate but were too poor to be able to afford the expensive wagons. The Perpetual Emigrating Fund had been prepared to help pay the expenses, but the Perpetual Emigrating Fund was low on its resources as well. There, We have to remember the Salt Lake Valley had only been settled nine years earlier. It was not a place of surpluses, and they had just gone through two years of drought. They had suffered terrible uh, loss of crops, suffered a lot of loss of their cattle just from freezing. Uh, over the winter. Cash circulating is an issue as well. There's not cash money to, to purchase things, not a lot of cash crops, which makes it really hard to buy the supplies that are needed. That's right. And so to get loans from the Perpetual Emigrating Fund to help people emigrate, and, and there were thousands, there were, I think, more than 4,000 in 1856 who emigrated and about that number in 1855. And to get that money, it was just it was just not there. And so... That was one of the reasons they felt this is the good time to immigrate, to implement the handcart plan. There's a quote here in the book that I thought we could read uh, from Jesse Haven. Said, I am inclined to think that the plan will prove a failure. Yet, as it is recommended by President Brigham Young, I shall back it up and recommend it too. So it seems like there's people that are saying, I don't know if this is going to work, but they're willing to give it a try. What were their misgivings and their concerns, and was that widespread, or does it generally just thought this is going to work out great? I think there were a lot of misgivings, uh, Jesse Haven being one. Uh, John Taylor in New York also had some misgivings about it. Some of the saints in England did, too. I mean, there was one woman who said she felt like she'd just be like cattle pulling a handcart. She just didn't want to do it. She ends up being one of the great heroines of the handcart story. But, yeah, there are reservations. I mean... To walk 1,300 miles is a long distance. To walk up pulling a handcart is even more difficult. 
to have hand carts breaking down, to be late in the season, to um, have all of these problems in addition to that just complicated matters immensely. So although there were some who had misgivings, uh, the majority were excited about the opportunity. Some of the uh, handcart pioneers, especially in William Martin, were among the earliest converts to the church in England. They'd been members for almost 20 years and had been wanting to emigrate for years but couldn't afford it. And so I like what William Kimball, who is a son of Heber C. Kimball, says. He says that the fire of emigration blazes throughout the pastorate and that people are willing to part with all their effects and toddle off with a few things in a pocket handkerchief. So while there were some misgivings, and let's acknowledge that, I think that the majority of the people were excited that here, finally, after all these years, was a way that we could make it to Zion. And one of those people that was, I think, very encouraging was Franklin Richards. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his role? Yes. So Franklin D. Richards was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We think of them a little differently today than we did then. He he was only 34, 35 years old at this time. A lot of responsibility for a man that age. And uh, he had been president of the European Mission for several years. And so he oversaw the emigration of all of these saints. He oversaw everything from the finances of arranging for ships to getting the people ready to go to the immigration office in the mission was a very, was a complicated organization. So that was his role was to get them ready to go. And then after he had seen the last one sail from the shore of Britain in 1856, his mission, his term as mission president was over. And so he then came by steamship and caught up with the handcart companies, uh, the Martin Company, at least in Florence, the Woolley Company, uh, midway across Nebraska, on his way back to try to get to Salt Lake City before General Conference. Well, and I think something neat about his role as mission president is he was also in charge of these missionaries who were coming home, and he's encouraging them to, he says, constantly seek how you can aid these immigrants by your experience, direct and comfort them by your counsels, cheer them by your presence, strengthen their faith, and keep the spirit of union and peace in their midst. I just thought that was amazing. Yeah, so they these missionaries who had, in most cases, already been away from home for close to four years on their missions, there were more than 100 who were called as missionaries to go throughout the world in 1852. I mean, some were called to Siam, some were called to England, some were called to South Africa, Jesse Haven being one who was called to South Africa. And a lot of these missionaries, after all of these sacrifices, after leaving families behind, they were told, you know, don't just go home. Your responsibility is to see all of these immigrants, these converts who wanted to emigrate home. And it was not, not an easy job. James Woolley, who led the Woolley Handcart Company, was returning from a mission. Uh, he led the saints on the the ship. He was presided over the saints on the ship and then presided over the handcart company. The same for Edward Martin. He presided over the saints on the ship that brought most of the saints in the Martin company. And then with Jesse Haven as a counselor and then presided over the Martin company. These were not flying to the Salt Lake airport and I'm home kind of <laughs> return missionaries. So this season, as I understand it, is the first season that handcarts are being tried. Martin and Willie are not the first companies that went with handcarts. How many companies were there before them? And kind of help us understand what's the order in which things are happening. So there are three companies before them who started out several weeks before them. 
1856. Altogether, there were 10 companies, but just five in 1856. So the three companies before them did very well. There was no way around. This was arduous labor. Backbreaking work, for sure. Uh, but they succeeded, and they were celebrated when they arrived in Salt Lake City the end of September, early October. They, again, had traveled more quickly than the average wagon company, as Brigham Young had predicted. Uh, they had suffered fewer deaths than the average wagon company. But again, it was considered a great success for them. Uh, likewise for the other companies, the companies 6 through 10, if you will, had great success. The handcart plan was really only used from 1856 through 1860. And so it was just that few years. And while the handcart pioneers have kind of become the icons of all pioneers, uh, they really were only about 3,000 of the 67 to 70,000 Oh, wow. uh, pioneers from the church who emigrated over the trail. Tell us about Martin and Willie companies. So they're companies four and five of, right. the, of the ten. We know they started late in the season. There's a scene in the book. In fact, let's just listen to a quote here from the book that describes this meeting where they're deciding whether they should continue on or winter in place. When the missionaries finished, Franklin arose again and asked the emigrants to vote on the matter. If you knew that you should be swallowed up in storms, he asked, would you stop or turn back? With cheers, most emigrants removed their hats, raised their hands, and voted to continue to Zion. So what is this meeting like that they're having this throw their hat up and let's go, we're going to Zion? I would have loved to be at those meetings. <laughs> um, it was more than one meeting. It was a series of meetings for both the Willie Company and the Martin Company. They had started the handcart journey at Iowa City, which was the western terminus of the railroad at the time. They had pulled across Iowa. It's about 277 miles each, taking about a month. And then they arrived at Florence, which had been winter quarters 10 years earlier. That was a stopping place, potentially, and a place to winter over. And they were late in the season. And so that was a discussion. Should we wait and continue the journey the next year? They knew that it would take them into November, late October, November, even at a good pace to reach the Salt Lake Valley. And they knew that weather could be bad, especially in the high plains of Wyoming and the mountains of Utah during that time. So they had these meetings, uh, both companies did, about a week apart. We think of the companies as being together, but they were typically about a week apart and 100 miles apart. We talk about them together because... They suffered. They both suffered the same right. kind of experience. Right. But So in mid-August 1856, the Woolley Company had these meetings. And this is the famous meeting. Theirs probably is better known because the immigration agents in Florence and James Woolley and other company leaders were encouraging the company forward. Doing so as a matter of faith, that God would protect them, God would help them through the storms and so forth. Levi Savage was one of James Woolley's sub-captains. He was returning from a mission to Siam. He, he was very experienced. He joined the church in 1846 and immediately joined the Mormon battalion and marched to California, got into the Salt Lake Valley in 1847 after being discharged. And uh, so soon after Brigham Young, again, as one of these missionaries called in 1852. And he tells them, and he's got tears streaming down his face. So he's in this meeting, and after they've been encouraged to go forward, he's uh, telling the people that if you try to make the journey this season, the bones of the old and, and the young will strew the way. And we will likely have to wade in snow up to our knees. 
we don't have clothing, we don't have bedding, we'll have to lie down at night and wrap ourselves in a thin blanket. And so you have these immigrants, uh, these converts in the Woolley Company, 400 of them, and they're in this meeting, a series of meetings, but in this meeting where they're being given conflicting advice on matters of life and death. Right. And not only life and death, but faith, and they're being yeah. encouraged to, to show their faith. And Right. So is this a matter of faith? That's another question. And and Levi Savage, of course, was, was a man of faith, a great faith. He endured, he lived in, to be 90 years old and endured faithfully to the end of his life. But in the end, 400 members of the Willie Company decided to go forward and about 100 stayed behind. Uh, with the Martin Company, which was uh, about 10 days later, Again, there was a series of meetings. It was a little bit different, though, because Franklin D. Richards, the man, the apostle who had sent them from the shores of England, was present by then for those meetings. And so immigration leaders and others, including Franklin D. Richards, generally were encouraging people to go forward. Some people spoke out against it. They said, "You just like Levi Savage had, that it's just too dangerous, it's, it's too risky. Yeah. We've been warned by Brigham Young and others, we should not leave here, the Missouri River, as they called it so late. And Brigham Young's son was someone who also was saying... Joseph Young. Don't go. Yes. Yeah, Joseph Young. And so to say that they all voted to go forward and most of them went forward, that's true, but I don't think they fully understood what they were getting into. Right. Well, how could they? They They'd never been there before. They'd never walked the trail. They hadn't experienced the weather. They're immigrants. This is a new country, a new climate. They were proceeding forward with a lot of unknowns that they, they just couldn't have known having never been here before. Andrew, we've heard a lot. I think many members can conjure up in their minds paintings of the handcart pioneers, you know, stuck in the snow and having all these difficulties. We know that this was just a terrible, terrible thing to endure. And I don't want to minimize that. But while we have you with us, I want to understand a little bit more about the rescue. First of all, can you tell us how did the saints in the valley become aware and at what time were they aware? And how was the rescue organized? Can you help us understand how this happened? Sure. That's a very complex story. I'll try to keep it short. But the first time they became aware, Brigham Young had been aware that these saints were in the country. He had received correspondence in July that they were in the country. So he knew they were there. What he didn't know was that the immigration agents had sent them forward. And he actually publicly criticized Franklin D. Richards and others, not so much for encouraging them to go forward, but I think he expected them to hold them in Florence and not send them forward so late in the year. So Franklin D. Richards, as I mentioned, is in Florence. He races ahead. He's trying to get there in time for general conference. He arrives in Salt Lake City on October 4th. They hold a meeting that night with Brigham Young. He tells Brigham Young that there are these two handcart companies and two wagon companies, the Hunt and Hodgetts wagon companies. Altogether, nearly 1,400 people laid on the trail. And this stuns Brigham Young. You don't see it. I've read the, the minutes of the meeting, and they're very businesslike. They're very matter-of-fact. Well, we need to send this much clothing. We need to send this much flour and, and those kinds of details. So you don't see that sense of urgency in the meeting, but something happens overnight to Brigham Young. Franklin D. Richards and other leaders have been promising that God will help you make it. You have been exercising faith, and he will help you make it. Brigham Young saw otherwise, and I believe it was a prophetic vision that, that he gets up the next morning and says, go in and bring in those people on the plains. And he says, that is my religion. That's the dictation of the Holy Ghost that I possess. 
I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait a fortnight. Hence, I mean, when you're starting to rescue 1,400 people, you'd think, take some time to get ready. You, you, that would only be reasonable. Right, right. He says, I want, and he dismisses the blacksmiths to get the wagons and the horses and the mules ready. And he asks for people to come up to the stand to volunteer that very meeting. Conference didn't actually start until the next day, which was the Monday the 6th, but this was a Sunday worship service. And so the men come up and volunteer. Meanwhile, the women, as Lucy Missouri Smith tells us, go into the tabernacle. This meeting was held in the Bowery. I love this, by the way. This mm-hmm. is a, a quote. You can find this in First 50 Years of Relief Society, which is in your Gospel Library app. You can read Lucy Missouri Smith's account of this, but tell us what the women did when this came up. The tabernacle we know today did not exist then. It was a what is called the old tabernacle. So the way I visualize it is they were meeting outdoors in the Bowery. It was a warm day. It was 77 degrees that day, according to newspapers. And so the women go into the tabernacle and they strip off everything they can spare. They strip off petticoats and socks, stockings, everything they can spare to give to the men who will start out on the rescue. And not only do they do that, then they continue to gather clothing and whatever they can give to rescue teams who will start out throughout the month of October. The first rescue team was only about 50 men and 22 wagons, according to most accounts. And rescuers through the end of October, even until the end of November, there were ended up being about 300 rescue wagons. Another thing I thought was really amazing about this story is that as part of that first rescue team, there were about five missionaries that had just returned to Salt Lake. And three days after they returned home, they turned around and leave in this rescue company. Yes, including Joseph Young and William Kimball. Some, you know, just because you're the son of the prophet and members of the first president, you don't get privilege of, of taking it easy. I mean, these brethren had served missions in England. They knew many of the people on the plains, and they felt a, a special responsibility and love for them. And uh, this first company of rescuers is on the trail within two days of that rescue call. That's incredible. So help me understand, the William Martin Handcart companies are about five to 600 miles away from Salt Lake, correct? So, I mean, when do they think they'll arrive in Salt Lake? And then how long is it going to take the rescue teams to reach these companies? The rescue teams left with very little knowledge about where they were. Franklin D. Richards could only estimate, of course, because he had passed by them in the middle of September. He didn't know exactly how far they and how fast they could travel. And so the rescuers are hoping they'll be in the area of the Green River Crossing, which is about 170 miles from Salt Lake City. The Woolley Company, the further, the, the one that was farther ahead. They reach there, and there's no evidence of them. One of the rescuers, Daniel W. Jones, says that when they reached there, our hearts began to ache when we had no word of them because they knew that there would be trouble. Now, one thing that's misunderstood that I think is important to understand is when Franklin D. Richards reported to Brigham Young, people think, well, people were dying in the snow. They were. It's a no-brainer. Just go ahead and, of course, you'd send them urgently. Right. It was still, people were still recording in their journals on the trail that it was hot on those days. It was one of those just lovely fall. Yeah. I mean, we have these beautiful Octobers where we're 70s, even sometimes in the 80s. So how did they know that it was going to get so bad? The first storm was two weeks away. Again, my belief about how Brigham Young knows, because others were not saying this, is prophetic foresight. He was able to see that disaster was coming. That's right. And even without being able to prevent it completely, they were able to send help. When did the handcart pioneers first find out that people were coming to help? So 
they had arrived at a place called Fort Laramie, which is about halfway between Florence or Winter Quarters and Salt Lake City. They had arrived there, the Woolley Company, the 1st of October. And there they had hoped that they would be resupplied with food because they could only carry a 60-day supply of food from Florence. Uh, just too heavy, too much to carry. The first three handcart companies had been resupplied from Salt Lake City, but because Brigham Young did not know these last two were on the trail, supplies had not been sent. But at the fort, they could only obtain about a day's supply of food. So they'd left Florence with 60 days. They'd taken 45 days to get to Fort Laramie. They had 15 days' supply of food to travel the remaining 500 miles. Mm -hmm. So just put yourself in James Woolley's position. And Edward Martin was very similar. That's not the kind of math problem you want to have. Uh, and so they did receive a, a notice that they could maybe hope for resupply at South Pass, which is the Continental Divide. But that's 280 miles away from Fort Laramie, and that's eight or nine miles away from there. They would run out of food at their current rations eight or nine days away from there. And so the only thing they could do is cut down on their rations. And so they traveled on reduced rations from normally a pound a day to three quarters of a pound a day, and then later to 11 and a half ounces a day for two weeks. Mm. And then hits October 19th, which is the key day in, in the question you're asking about. They run out of food on October 19th, still haven't seen the rescuers. They don't even know if the rescuers know they're out there. They'd be hoping. Sure. I mean, they know Franklin passed by. And that he would tell. And he he's certainly going to give the message, but how urgently would they respond? Would they think, oh, they're going to be fine. They'll make it in a little late. Or did they winter over somewhere because they were so late? I mean, yeah. maybe they stayed at Fort Laramie. No one knew. I mean, there were, this was not a day of communication except by horseback. And so the Woolley Company, though, runs out of food that day. That morning, the first snowstorm hits. They've been traveling on reduced rations for, for the, all this time. They don't have clothing. They don't have bedding to help them through this storm. And so... Midway through that day, four express riders from that first rescue team, led by George Grant, ride up into their camp. And there's these people awake. There's this shout and cries rend the air with celebration that we have been found. These four express riders, one of them was Joseph Young, Cyrus Wheelock was another. Abel Gar, who was not a member of the church, was another. Stephen Taylor was another. But these men saw the people and the condition they were in and tried to cheer them but they had nothing to give them. They were traveling light. They were, you know, they were a scout team ahead of the main rescue team and nothing to give them but hope that the rescuers with wagons full of food and clothing were not far behind. But even that rescue team was small. And so the accounts, uh, these four men could not hold back their tears. They try to cheer up the people, but they themselves are speaking through tears. And one woman says, why do you cry, Brother Young? And he says, because you look so starved and the relief wagons are so far away. And then Joseph Young gives this woman, Emily Hill is her name. She's the author of the words to the hymn, A Sisters in Zion. And he gives her an onion. That's, they just didn't have much to give. And that's the equivalent of a feast when you're out of food. And rather than eat it, she gives it to a man who is dying by the fire. And uh, he says later that it saved his life. But Again, we're in a situation where they can't help. They have to hurry on. The other companies are more than 100 miles behind, and they've got to go find them. So they stay only briefly and move on. In another chapter, another episode, we're going to learn more about the completion of the rescue and the arrival of the saints into the valley. But, Andrew, before we let you go today, I wonder if you could tell us, why do you think this story is so important to us as a people? 
Why is it that when we think of pioneers, we think of handcarts? You know, why do we do trek? What is it about this story that makes it so important to us um, as Latter-day Saints today? I think it's important to recognize that all the pioneers went through hardships. They all struggled. These were not the only two companies. Uh, they get a lot of focus, but they all had their share of challenges. But why it's important is because they gave up everything. They gave up family. They gave up homelands. They gave up belongings to follow the encouragement of a prophet to gather to Zion where they could receive their ordinances, their temple ordinances. Although they were not temples, they could receive ordinances in the endowment house at the time. And they heard the voice of the prophet and not just William Martin, but all of these pioneers. And they wanted to help build and gather Zion and have a, establish a Zion community. And they sacrificed, their sacrifices are great examples to us. Their obedience is great examples. Their endurance, I think, is a great example to us. Uh, there are many things that we can learn from these pioneers. There's a quote that I, I know I've heard in Sunday school several times, and probably many of our listeners have. And, it, and I'm paraphrasing. It goes something like this where, there's some meeting, a Sunday school class, and they're talking about the handcart companies and that there were mistakes made. And then this elderly gentleman in the back stands and he gives his testimony and saying, in short, we came to know God in our extremities. Can you tell us what was the, the outcome for those that survived? Did they remain faithful like this story that we've heard? So that statement comes from Francis Webster. He and his wife suffered a lot on the trek, uh, but they survived, obviously. And to say that none of the people ever left the church is incorrect. Uh, some people did, but overall, they remained remarkably faithful, and not just in staying in the church, but they were assigned to some of the most remote and hospitable places to establish settlements in Utah and Idaho and, and elsewhere. So they continued on. Part of my interest in the handcart story is what happened after they got here? Right. Did they remain faithful? And the answer is almost always yes. Not always, but almost always. And not only did they remain faithful, they accepted some of the most difficult assignments that you could imagine. Some of them were part of the Hole in the Rock expedition. And so they faced challenges. They would settle one place and just begin to get settled and be asked to go settle another place. Andrew, can you tell us a few of your favorite stories um, from these handcart pioneers? Well, it's hard to know where to start with a question like that, but I'll just tell you a story about um, uh, Jane James. She was a very strong and faithful woman. Her husband was in bad health before they left. Their children were growing older, would start to leave home. She wanted to gather uh, before they began to leave home. Her husband kind of wanted to wait until he was in better health. But they get coming across, and she, they, they have like seven or eight children, I don't recall. One of them's a baby, and the baby dies crossing the ocean. And so they have to put the baby in a, in a watery grave. And they continue across. She has three daughters who later write accounts of this. They continue across, and, and in Florence, she is one of the women in the Woolley Company. They are one of the families in the Woolley Company who have great reservations about whether they should continue one of the daughters says they looked in her mother's eyes and all they saw was this old determined look. They said, you know, really there was nothing to keep us here. We couldn't find work. We didn't have housing. So there really wasn't a way to stay here. She just pushed them forward. And 
When they get to the point of Rocky Ridge, this is October 23rd, right after that October 19th storm, and it's still storming. This family becomes very spread out over the Rocky Ridge. William James, the father, he, he collapses in the snow. The children, they have two handcarts. The children, some of the older ones are moving ahead. And William and his 13-year-old son, Reuben, stay behind and say, to, he says to Jane, go ahead. And Jane James goes and, and catches up with her other children and helps them get over Rocky Ridge. And, and they get into camp and they begin asking for word about William. And William, they find nothing out about him until the last wagons arrive in camp at five in the morning. Some of the people were on the, camp, on the trail 20 hours that day. And William is dead in the wagon. 13-year-old Reuben is frozen and almost dead. And Jane James, her daughters say that for the first time they see a dead look in her eyes. Like she's having to recalibrate what Zion will look like without her husband and likely without her, her oldest son. And she, though, two days later when the company leaves that camp, she has her children ready to go. She puts her four-year-old son in the cart. And uh, these rescuers arrive, and remember that first team was only about 50 men and 20-some wagons. Only six wagons stayed with the Woolley Company. So the Woolley Company had to pull, even after the rescuers arrived, pull their handcarts over Rocky Ridge, and Jane James had to continue with most of them 160 miles to Fort Bridger before finally enough rescue wagons would arrive that they could carry them all. And she arrives in Salt Lake City with all the rest of her children, including Reuben, alive. And she leads them in this process. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with us your insights and expertise, especially about these handcart companies. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And for our listeners, we encourage you to check out the topics that are associated with this chapter, especially about the handcart companies and emigration in general and anything else this chapter covers. And as always, we welcome your feedback. You can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org to tell us your thoughts and any questions that you have. And for more information, you can visit saints.churchofjesuschrist.org and check out all the topics and videos and chapters associated with Saints Volume 2. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Please join us again next time 